At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Warning, this podcast may contain bad language and content that some listeners may find informative. I mean, it didn't say scenes, which is fantastic. Yeah, I'm getting there. It may contain squirrels falling from trees and dying. I mean, there, there, there's no squirrels referenced at all in the episode. But I see what you did. There's a hundred, There's loads of squirrels referenced. But what happened to our squirrels? They're falling. We've, we've been through this, man. Yeah, I feel sad. I feel like we're not doing great intros recently. I feel like you're not bringing the thunder, personally. I think that you're the one who brings all the effort to the intros, and I just sit here getting ridiculed. Oh, so your problem is that I'm not taking the piss out of you enough? Pretty much. Right, well, you're a good... Welcome to the Seesaw Podcast with Tea and Cleves. Each week, offering up a great perspective on life. Welcome to a brand new, shiny episode right off the forecourt. Willkommen, German again. How ist Cleves? I'm fine. If anything, you should have done the welcome in Canadian. Hello, eh? Oh, my God. That's why I didn't do it. It's terrible. We should just literally get straight into it. This week is going to be about the Fallen Squirrel game, The Veil. Do you want to give a quick overview of the game? The Veil, Shadow of the Crown. Is, is... this a Last of Us Part 2 where you fucked me on that shit? <laughs> no, it's Last of Us Part 2. You'll be right. So, The Veil, Shadow of the Crown, is a game from Fallen Squirrel. This game is a visual... How do you define it? It's sort of like a visual novel. No. No, not at all. <laughs> I would describe it as an audio-based audio based, Audio-based game. There is, like, m- no very visuals. minimal visuals. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that no visuals. I got mixed up. And uh, no doubt he's going to keep this in to be a dick. Oh, no doubt. This is a game that's been released which has no visual content, really. I mean, it does have a little bit, but negligible to the point where it does not have anything to do with like the game. It's all play. based on sound. You listen to it through your headphones, you listen through the ears. It's a fantasy-based game. It's about a princess that's trying to find the way home. It's pretty much all explained in what we're about to talk about, and we're here to chat with the developers of that game. Awesome. So if you guys want to sort of introduce yourselves, like uh, who you are, what, what you do. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'll start. Uh, my name's Dave Evans. I am the owner and uh i guess i could say founder of falling squirrel it's it's funny when you have a 
company that's really one or two people. I could say, you know, CEO, CFO, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, and uh, Falling Squirrel is a video game uh, developer. And we just uh, recently made a game, our first uh, in-studio project which is a audio-based uh, adventure game, uh, which is accessible for the uh, blind and low-vision community. And I'm Jamie Robaz, and I was the producer on this project. Fantastic. So, of course, the, the game you talk about, the, uh, the Veil, Shadow of the Crown, available now at all good retailers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I played it on the Xbox Series S, I think the one I've got. Um, I think it's on PC as well, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. I've completed it, and Eric's played a huge chunk of it in secret. Um, I set him up on it once, and I said, "There you go, play this." And then we've been chatting, sort of like getting our notes together before like this chat. And he's gone, "Oh yeah, I've done this, 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 and this." I know, but I can't play it with you because you backseat game. I am bad for that. To be fair, even with headphones on, he still somehow manages to get in the backseat there. Yeah, <laughs> you see, the, the, this is embarrassing, but I put a headphone splitter on. So I suppose my first question is, where did the concept come from? Because obviously it's, it's quite unique. Where, where did the idea come from? Gosh, five years ago now, I wanted to start kind of my, a pet project that I could uh, uh, play with things I was particularly okay at, <laughs> like uh, narrative and voice direction, that sort of thing. And I, I just wanted a simple project that I could I could make a fairly big world and game experience it, with not a lot of money. Um, that's really how it started. And within a few months of sort of figuring out what this game would be and figuring out that I, even though it's a bit of a trope, uh, I, I wanted to have a blind protagonist as the main character in this audio only experience. I realized, oh, this is obviously accessible for the, for the blind community. And I, I wandered into the CNIB, which is the Canadian National Institute for the Blind and Lo and behold, uh, there were a lot of people there interested in video games and uh, this project in particular. So uh, that's kind of where it all started. Yeah, once we started doing the market analysis to get some funding for the project, we realized that you know there are a lot of similar games like this, uh, and there's a pretty large online community that's really passionate about uh, other uh, audio-based games. So it was... It was really neat to kind of see it incidentally come together for as an advocacy project. I guess we didn't initially intend for it to be that way, but we're really happy with the direction that it quickly started to take. So was it that you wanted to make a sort of audio-only based game and then the story came afterwards or did you have the story in place going in and then it just kind of felt better that it was audio-only? Uh, much of the story was was there from the beginning, mainly because I felt, and I have to, I have to state this so anyone listening within the blind community, there is a bit of a trope for sighted developers in particular, but but anyone making a game who's doing it in all audio and thinking of trying to align the experience of the player with the fact that you can't see anything, that they immediately make the main character blind, which isn't necessarily the experience that blind gamers are looking for. But I really did start this as the, the novelty of playing a blind character as a sighted person is really where that where that started. And so the story about this uh, princess who's sort of lost in the barrens and has to make her way home 
with her own sort of cunning and ability and then the help of others uh, was really the, the beginning of, of the idea. So yeah, the story kind of came first, actually. Did you write the story yourself or how has that sort of come together? Yeah, I, I, I largely did. I, I do, uh, as a writer, I do workshop material with other writers. There's, uh, I, I don't think I've, I've done a proper project unless the best idea in the game narrative wise come, doesn't come from somebody who's not me. It just always seems to happen. So I do have to give quite a bit of credit to my wife who, who wrote, uh, sections of the game and, uh, some of my, actually some of my interns that were, that were interested in narrative came up with some great ideas, but most, mostly me forming it, but, uh, I, I always get help and, and the blind community that helped me, uh, sort of hone in on the, the right experience and, and sort of steered me away from some, some stuff that may not have been as, uh, good, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't run into too many pitfalls, but they were there to help me through that. Were they quite involved then in the sort of designing of it? it, it in the end, in particular, yes. Uh, there was a period at the very beginning where we did a lot of focus testing and we got a lot of feedback. And that was that there was sort of a phase one that sort of aligned everything. I, I co- kind of was aware of the pitfalls. I knew that the character couldn't be defined by their disability. They had to be, they had to have their own arc and trajectory, and they had to be defined by something completely outside of the experience of being blind. These were things that I, I kind of knew going in, but I, that was that sort of solidified once I connected with the community. And then in particular, at the end, during rounds of focus testing, a huge amount of community feedback came in at a time where we could still make adjustments. And in particular, there was uh, uh, one game developer from Prague, from the uh, blind community, Lukas Hansel. And uh, he was instrumental in in kind of helping me at the, at the end, just with the UI, just everything, uh, just little narrative tweaks and things like that. But uh, but pretty much a, a cast of about a hundred people from the wow. blind and low vision community were were there playing multiple versions of the game. Oh yeah, at least. And I, I don't know what Lucas's uh, work situation is, but if anybody listening on the podcast needs a good game developer who's really got that perspective uh, with regards to accessibility in the blind and low vision community, that is probably the guy that you want to get in touch with. Also, yeah, a, a big shout out to audiogames.net for being a community that we continue to go to time and time again to give us feedback or help in testing for anything. Uh, the people there are just so ready to get involved and have a discussion and aren't afraid about giving you their opinion, whether you know they, they love it or whether there are things that they really hate. And particularly being an indie developer, having that level of engagement without, I don't want to say without having to work for it, but uh, um, just kind of having it there and having everybody engage with you off the bat because of the project that you're making is so, so valuable. And we, I I, I will continue to say until the end of time that like, I cannot thank that community enough for their passionate involvement. It's so refreshing to hear that like you've, you've gone out and you've reached out to these communities and they've given you feedback. I'm just curious, is there anything that, was flagged to you as a no don't don't do that that's a trope like <laughs> that's that's something that we we wouldn't want to see like is there anything that sort of stands out yeah yeah the obviously the one i mentioned which was that the whole center of of the experience of this character was something that i think as a writer uh i i would always want a character to be defined by multiple multiple things and and uh but i i really 
was very cognizant of getting that right. That in fact, it was it was something I went on my way to. Uh, most people within blind or sighted community will forget about the main character's blindness within uh, about 15, 20 minutes of playing the game. Um, you get the setup, you understand what you're doing, and now you close your eyes and, and play an experience. I don't know if, by the way, that was your experience, but that's that's the intention of a lot of this. And then those moments where you do remind people uh, about that, those were the, the intersections where I got a lot of comments. I'm trying to think of maybe one of the better ones was... Um, I'd, I'd made a joke um, about the character, your companion character says, uh, why don't you have a look around this village? And then he corrects himself and says, has, have a listen around, right? I, there was, it was funny because there was two sides mounting saying, oh, this is totally something somebody who would not understand the community would say. So that was the perspective of this character saying that. Uh, then it was like, is this something we want to remind people about? Or would would we, you know, we would never say, listen, uh, there's certain phrasings of, 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 I mean, the obvious one is that, you know, people within the blind community say, see you later, or I'll see you next time. They say, see, and it's it's part of our vernacular, right? And, and they don't skirt around it and say, I'll hear you later, right? So yeah. there's just a, there was a bristling to that. And I'm like, I just removed it because I'm like, it's an interesting debate that yes, this character would have that. But because I'm not actually making a, 10th century backdrop, like period piece. It's like, this is a fantasy world that doesn't have a lot of patriarchy in it. Like there's other things that I've kind of pulled away. The character as a, as a female main character doesn't get questioned, but so I'm like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe I don't need to, to go into that. There's some characters, enemies in particular that don't have a lot of respect for her blindness, but it, it, yeah. it's just these little moments. I think uh, one of the ones that stands out for me is uh, Alex asking uh, for things to be described to her. I remember that that had a, a pretty, I guess, heated back and forth uh, uh, on forums about whether people felt it was appropriate or not. And I think what's important is that we just like try to listen to to a lot of it. And also, Dave yeah. mentioned finding the right verbiage as to uh, you know. People say C colloquially, and that is uh, okay. That is also a thing that, and I will speak for myself and not for both of us, because maybe Dave already was super tactful. Um, but that is a thing that I was worried about initially, and you know, the whole uh, process of uh, testing and working with the CNIB and the blind low vision community. That was a, a learning process uh, of learning what uh, was or wasn't okay, and how that all goes. And ultimately making friends in the community. I, I did not have friends in the community and now I do. So that was half of what I got out of this whole project. Yeah. And we can loop back around to it, but on the, you know, the question was, you know, was the community really involved more so than just, uh, you know, testing or uh, chiming in online with uh, uh, their opinions? Yeah, we have Lukash, a, a developer. We have uh, voice actors from the blind low vision community that were involved in the project. Uh, we have a consultant, Martin Corsellis, who uh, uh, consulted in a lot of the prototyping and early work for for the game. So we, we tried to, uh, I guess check our privilege enough by involving people in the community and listening to them over us uh, whenever we could. I feel. I'm going to throw like my assumption out there, but I assume that both of you are, are not a member of that community just from like, the way you've explained things. Yeah, um, yeah we're, we're, we're both cited, yes. So on that, I mean, the question was going to be the same regardless, <laughs> but how difficult was it to design a game sort of with no sort of visual aspect to it at all, like was that quite tough to do? Yeah, there was there was aspects of it that were were surprisingly easy, and I 
I thought might be, I suspected, and that this game's built in a 3D engine and just in getting the general metrics right of this is how tall a person is, this is where their ears are placed, this is where the sound of feet happen, this is where the sword swings, this is where people talk from, and uh, this is the size of a city square. I literally just laid stuff out in, in 3D space with these little rudimentary like boxes and stuff and blocked it out like I would a, a game that would have visuals and then listened to it and said, oh, that sounds about right. And there's quite a bit of tweaking. Um, and then it, it, from a playability standpoint, then, then we started learning little things that we would we'd need to adjust that would probably uh, have some visual analog in a, in, a, in a visual game. For example, if there's a really important beacon in like say a, a, a city square, um, it would be probably likely isolated by a shaft of light or there'd be some lighting cue or it'd be this big obvious object that that's the town hall or something. And, and it's a, it's a landmark. Well, we had to do that with audio. We would landmark certain sounds. We had to come up with re- reasonable sounds for everything you'd have to find. There's a lot of sellers that you can interact with. There's a, a tavern that always has music. There's a blacksmith that's always banging away. Uh, there's a monastery and then he used uh, the monastery bells to be uh, a beacon. And these were elevated slightly above the, uh, the din of the, of the, the atmospheric crowd. Um, and then we also placed sort of hidden, hidden secret things that kind of rewarded players for listening carefully uh, things that were a bit in the background, which were not related to main quests and wouldn't result in frustration, not being able to find, but they would be kind of surprises that you would find in the game. Um, and that's really what it came down to is just laying the stuff out, listening to it. Uh, there was a, quite a bit we learned in, in how to handle combat. Like a good example would be, just handling like the precision of attacks. I I at one point thought we could have a a player surrounded by enemies at various degrees of of 360. Uh, And then I realized depending on how well your, or how well your head's adjusted to our specific version of binaural audio, which I guess everyone's uh, there's a head transfer effect that changes based on your head size and ears and stuff is that we, we couldn't rely. It would sound great to, to, to everybody, but uh, the precision uh, through which you could hear someone is 45 degrees to your right was not there. So we had to make sure people were basically the right, the left and in front of you and sort of held to these slots in order to make combat fluid and, and playable for everybody. And, and there's 20 other things I'm sure. I could yeah. Play. I mean, to, to interject with, with one or two of the, the 20, <laughs> I I think uh, what was really interesting is you know we wanted to try to get as many people using a controller to play our game as possible. Um, you know we felt it was the best experience. It it had force feedback as well, um, and uh, a lot of people who haven't played games before because the mediums generally visually inaccessible are unfamiliar with the controller. So somebody's holding a controller for the first time, they can feel where the sticks are, which is what you use to aim your attacks. Um, but you know what they feel is all the way to the left might be a little bit left and up. Uh, and that's you know when we realized we weren't able to accommodate um, really, really high degrees of accuracy and had to widen out those uh, attack zones. So those were the kinds of challenges that we didn't expect to to have uh, just because it, it wasn't at the front of our minds. So those were interesting things to come across. And Dave earlier mentioned uh, head-related transfer function. HRTF is the, just the biological function of how your brain 
pinpoint the direction of a sound that you hear. And when working with binaural audio, and I think this is still probably the case for some people uh, in the final release of the game, that if you have a character in the game that's moving from your left in front of you to your right, for some people, just based on the way that their HRTF works in relation to the game audio, they will hear that as somebody moving behind them. Uh, and there are some adjustments that can be done, and I think we did a pretty good job uh, uh, by the end of development to make that work for as many people as possible. But stuff like that is the kind of things that I don't think we could have predicted necessarily. We just kind of had to run into that and realize, oh, yeah, this is a, this is an issue. Let's do our best. Yeah, and, and trying to demo a game without any visuals, we realized we needed you know, headphone splitters, because someone would get stuck or, and I'd be like, I don't know where you are. I can't see. Yeah. Um, so we, we would have uh, alternate versions that we could see the 3D, uh, what's happening in 3D. So I could at least know what was going on early on. And then eventually, once we had builds of the game without that 3D element, we kind of hid from the player. We'd have to put headphones on and listen to the, them play to know what's going on. That's cool. That's literally answered pretty much my next question, which was what was the constraints of uh, making a game like that? So I guess following on from that, how did you sort of balance the difficulty levels? When we were looking at you know the community that we primarily wanted to market the game towards, there were uh, a few subsets of players. There were people who had never played a game before. There were people who had only played audio games before, and you know they liked audio games to varying degrees. Uh, and then there were people who would like just really. I'm trying to think of the right idiom for working really hard, but it's failing me. But they would just work real hard at playing uh, uh, any game that that they were really particular about, um, whether it was uh, accessible or not. Uh, my favorite example of this are uh, is uh, from Mortal Kombat. The sound design in it is really, really well done to the point where there are a number of uh, blind and low vision players who even play it competitively. And so people who were in that last subset of players wanted a, a really hard game. They played every audio game that existed. They were all too easy. They were pretty adept at video games as it is because they have to challenge themselves more than uh, a sighted player to just access a game uh, and they wanted something really hard. But we also wanted the game to be just as uh, uh, playable for people who had never touched a game before. So the veil has varying difficulty levels that uh, affect how how I guess merciful combat is and how many mistakes you can make. We worked really hard to find a good balance where if you're on easy, you're going to be able to get through the game no matter what. And if you're on hard, hopefully, fingers crossed, and I'm sure if you're listening to this and you disagree, you can definitely let us know and we'll do our best to, to fix it for the next game. Um, but fingers crossed, uh, it satisfied that itch for, for I guess, the, the more masochistic gamers, um, which I am. Uh, so I... I I definitely remember moments in in testing where uh, I was rage quitting just from twist testing, and I think that's where I'm like, yeah, you know, this might be this might be the right place to tune it. I did that last night when fighting the baker; it was pissing me off, and I had to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one was harder before release too. Eh? Is that right, Dave? I, I think so. It was actually broken. Yeah, it, it wasn't possible to finish at one point. It was it was literally, it's like, why are you shooting so many fireballs at me? Like, there, it was just, it was brutal. But yeah, that's why I was screaming at the screen. 
Yeah, I think that's where we wanted the hard difficulty to land. So, so thank you. I, I, you know, uh, I, I, I'm sure. I hope it was the best worst experience you could get for, oh, for yeah, difficulty. <laughs> Sometimes, where you have got a lot of these accessible games out there, they are just far too easy. It's like you get through it and you think that's too easy. Where's the challenge? And it was great to have like that genuine challenge. You know, on the screen, you get like the sort of lights. You know, when you move. There is like very minimal visuals, isn't there? How did you decide on those? Basically, they're a crutch for sighted players. Uh, we originally had a control scheme for movement, which was not aligned to standard uh, first-person shooter controls. So it was at, at one point even more important that uh, I felt we put these particles in because people that were expecting or had uh, certain expectations as to how controls would work, especially within the sighted community who are playing a lot of first-person games... Uh, I thought it would be helpful uh, to to have that uh, have that in there. Uh, it arguably became a slightly less important as we ended up aligning our control system a little bit more with that. But there was still an aspect of not having you know, on the keyboard. You don't have the the standard mouse WASDA keys. Uh, you're using what do you call it? To arrow keys and things. And just to know that it's strafing. Uh, it's it's a lot easier than saying you know, right and left is strafe and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And the, to be quite honest, the, the blind community just listened more carefully. Uh, they would be so reliant in, in day-to-day life at listening carefully uh, that they just seem to pick it up so much faster. Uh, so it stayed in there as a crutch for sighted players. And with the idea that once you understand how the game generally works, you really should close your eyes and, and play it that way. And then the other thing was at one point I was told there was a TR, uh, there's a technical requirement to make sure that there's always uh, visuals on the screen so that people know the game didn't freeze. And I actually don't, I don't even know how true that is, to be honest, but it's been in there f- forever. And then we just did a couple of things with it, change the color and move in a little bit uh, for flavor, but with the idea that we would never do anything that would, that would uh, make the game easier to play once you understand it, mainly so that people didn't feel like there was something being withheld from the society or the blind community in terms of getting extra information that was important. So yeah, uh, that, yeah that's, that's the reason it's there. There's also a map that comes up uh, when you're traveling. And I know that we had discussed ideas for some other things uh, to, you know, for a lot of people who are, have vision issues, they still can see some things or, or like some light. It's not just a black screen. So we, you know, we had discussed having like textures if you find certain equipment or gear from enemies and ultimately that stuff didn't make it in but there were other uh minor visual i guess like cosmetic concessions that that uh we had thought about i mean i closed my eyes when i, when I was playing my, my wife would always walk through and she go are you playing anything like why, why is the screensaver on that's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's like it's not a scheme saver, it's, it's a game. But of, of course, sort of like where, where the game really shines is I think it's the audio design. How how did you design like what sort of ideas went into the audio design? Because there were some parts where it was genuinely creepy without the visual aspect. The noise for the rift is just haunting. <laughs> oh good. good. <laughs> I sort of uh take probably more credit than I should when I talk. I say you know, when I talk about creative stuff, I say, I, uh, I, there was a sound designer as well. Uh, Tom Mullen, who wasn't working in engine. Um, he's, he's a 
film and TV person, but uh, he basically provided most of the hero sound. So as soon as there was something, I got a really good pack of uh, high quality medieval combat sounds. So that was just me putting things together carefully and then some environmental packs that would have that. So that's, that was the basis. And then anything that was important enough to be uh, sort of a game defining element like the like the rifts and and the uh the relic sounds and things like that uh i i threw it over the wall to uh to tom to design so uh there was a professional sound designer creating the the basic uh, important pieces of the game and he was also the person recording the audio for the uh for the voiceover as well so we obviously there's quite a bit of audio um so those those to me were the most important things is is uh, I, I would say without a doubt, performance was the most important th- thing to me in a narrative game like this, and and even in combat, something as simple as combat, as important as the the impacts and things are, uh, just feeling like characters aren't uh, you're not fighting somebody on some sort of audio loop or something uh, was relatively important. You might hear the odd repeated sound, but in general, it, it should feel relatively unique each each fight on some level through having enough variety and in, in taunts and, and things like that. And uh, so that was to me, the, the real focus of the design and everything else was really just leaning on the binaural audio tool is figuring out what this thing could do, what it couldn't do. Um, I had some real high hopes for having more height feeling of height when things, large objects would rise up, which isn't hugely important for play. Thank goodness. But it never really came through um, with the, with the limitations in, in the, the plugin we were using in, in the software. So um, but uh, yeah, we just really kind of leaned on that and then uh, made sure people could hear stuff uh, and uh, and really approached each scene as its own contained emotion is sort of the the thing I come back to. So there would be scenes that were meant to be creepy and, and hopefully we delivered on that. And there were scenes that were meant to be funny. Uh, and there were scenes that were meant to be um, like a, just adrenaline pumping sort of things. And all the focus was make sure everything lines up with those general emotions you're supposed to have in those those things, which I think is important for a game that's supposed to feel, at least aspire to feel AAA epic and in scale on some level, is to have it not be a, a monotone, like a, a journey that's just kind of consistent, like an arena fighter or something would have that very consistent feel. This was meant to change uh, moment to moment. And oh, and um, there's a run on thought. Uh, but the other thing that was relatively important was taking the basics of our combat and figuring figuring out ways we could reinvent the scenario in a in a meaningful or interesting way without rewriting our entire combat engine. So it's like, oh, where can you fight? We well, could fight on horseback and mechanically it'd be very similar, but we can make it feel like you're actually riding a horse or you'd fight on a floating raft and pirates are jumping on your ship and attacking you. Those are the things we kind of went out of our way to see if we could create these scenarios and audio incredibly cheaply compared to what you'd have to do in in an can you imagine in a in a in a visual full visual game if somebody said hey can we add a pirate scene and you'd be like oh my god water technology and and is it going to be rocking on physics like to be all these questions that come up and yeah. all that goes away it's like i found the right sounds and uh, and and really trying to exploit the intimacy of combat was probably the the key to a lot of what we did in, in audio design realizing that things that are far away from you have less meaning they kind of get lost in the background but when things get up close combat's close even something as simple as an interaction with an npc you don't have too many npcs walk up and whisper in your ear in most games and, and we just sort of exploited those things that the uh, binaural audio did really nicely and we're back from the interview, and I think that was really interesting, Cleves, like finding out like the development process of a game, especially one with no visual content. I mean, that's... It's a brand new... Well, it's not brand new, but it's 
taking it to mass market like they have is insane. Yeah, I mean, there have been games out there that do not have any sort of visual content to them. Yeah, but they're for full-on blinkers. They're not for everyone. That's true. And this this game, like The Veil, is available on PC and Xbox. Like Xbox One and the new iteration, Xbox Series S and X. So it's like, this has gone mainstream, which I've never heard of any of these other sort of like blind focused games being on these platforms. I think that's a huge step. As they pointed out as well, and as I thought while I was playing it, it's not really a blind game. It's more of a more of an every person's game. It just happens to be the fact that you're a blind character. I think it was a fantastic interview. It's great to have the guys on. And that was just part one. Next time we are going to be talking to them about the future of games in terms of accessibility. Things like what The Last of Us Part 2 did and where they're going to go with their game, how they perfected this game and what, what, what they generally like to see from new games. Jamie and Dave are not from the vision impaired and blind community and they're taking a genuine interest in making games accessible. And not just for blind people, just for all walks of disability. <laughs> I was going to say all walks of disability is a bit insensitive because not everyone can walk. Whatever, all roles of disability. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We're going to have a second episode coming up next week. See you then. Adios. Thanks for listening to the Seesaw Podcast. You'll find us on Facebook at Seesaw Podcast, Twitter, Seesaw Pod. You can email us at seesawpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on TikTok and Instagram at Seesaw Podcast or Seesaw Pod, depending on which one we want. But get us on the other places. This podcast was recorded in front of a blind audience.